is a doctor of Chinese medicine and acupuncturist who has a lot to say about our relationship with food. In today's episode of the podcast, we discuss Dr. Moorhead's evolution from vegan to embracing a wide variety of whole foods, including animal fats and meats. We'll also go into ancient and current applications of Chinese medicine and how the doctor has successfully treated breast disorders ranging from mastitis to breast cancer. Coming up next on the Nutrition Heretic Podcast. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. If you're still confused about what to eat and not getting the results you thought you'd get by going organic, go to nutritionheretic.com and download the shit list of seven health foods to avoid like the plague for free. The shit list details what health food companies want you to believe about the crap they peddle and why the real foods they're meant to replace are far better. Stop letting big health food dump all over you and download the shit list today. Fat is bad for you. I just pop a pill and I'm fine. Meat is murder. <laughs> it's time for bad food punishment. It's time for real nourishment. It's time for the nutrition heretic. The following program is provided as information only and may not be construed as medical or health advice. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any disease. No action or inaction should be taken solely on the basis of the information provided here. Please consult with a licensed healthcare professional or doctor on any matter relating to your health and well-being. Hello and welcome to the Nutrition Heretic Podcast. Once again, this is Adrian Hugh, the Nutrition Heretic. Well, uh, healthcare. Um, a lot of people are pissed off right now. They don't know what to do about the um, pulling of Obamacare. Kind of on a on a funny note, uh, my friend got into an argument with a guy who was like, "Yeah." Uh, Trump has got to pull back Obamacare. You know, this is, it's horrible. It doesn't work. Blah, blah, blah. And he goes on and on and on. And my friend said, well, what about the millions of people who depend on Obamacare? And he says, well, I don't care. I have the Affordable Care Health Act. <laughs> so, um, not realizing that it's actually the same thing. Uh, so where does this lead me? This leads me to the fact that we, um, it, this is just more confirmation that we need to take charge of our own health. We cannot depend on a broken system to fix every little thing for us because it's gotten to kind of a ridiculous point in my mind where we re re we're relying so heavily on the on the healthcare institution uh that you know that that is you know just making sure we it's it's like you know having coupons at the supermarket we we're so tied into the system that we don't realize that we can actually take more charge and I don't want to say get rid of the system completely, but that we have a lot of tools at our disposal. And unfortunately, you know, part of the catch 22 with the conventional healthcare system is that it doesn't necessarily fix the stuff or, or even, no, I shouldn't say fix, but help you get to where you want to go. Uh, as an aside, uh, you know, many of my friends, I see them posting on Facebook and they're talking about like, oh my God, you know, I've went to the doctor eight times in the last month and they can't figure out what's wrong with me. Well, a lot of times that's because they're looking in the wrong place or they're, they're looking to name a disease. Uh, however, if you understand the underlying 
uh, pieces of, uh, you know, what some of the basic systems need to function, I believe that we can overcome them and we can help guide our bodies back to health. You know, this is not the band-aid approach that conventional medicine takes, but it's, it's guiding ourselves back. Now, you know, uh, from listening to this show that, and this is b- very bizarre that there's a plane flying that close to my house, uh, <laughs> because we don't have that in, we don't have really that kind of airspace here. Anyway, uh, but, you know, one of the things that I talk about a lot on the show is the fact that we cannot eat the same diet year in, year out, year round, uh, you know, just for the rest of our lives. The needs of a, an infant are very different from the needs of a premenopausal woman as they are from a, an 80 year old male. Uh, you know, we need to understand how our bodies ebb and flow with the seasons, with our location on the planet, with our age, with our gender, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And met, much of this is uh, rooted in my background in Chinese dietetics. So today I invited a guest heretic. His name is Ken Moorhead. He's a doctor of Chinese medicine and ac- acupuncturist uh, at Oriental Health Solutions in Durham, North Carolina. Ken, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Oh, thank you so much for, for being here. I've been trying to get you on the show for a while because I saw you speak over a decade ago, and uh, you really inspired me. I had already been studying Chinese dietetics, uh, but um, your your work really impressed me because I'm going to say something that's going to sound kind of prejudiced, but <laughs> but I, I th- you have a, a very balanced approach to, to Chinese medicine in my mind. Uh, and part of that is because I think a lot of Westerners, in particular North Americans who follow Chinese medicine, get caught up in trying to retrofit much of Chinese medicine into systems like the food pyramid. Uh, I don't know if you see the same thing. Actually, I'd have to say the thing I've seen the most, and I think it's less of an issue now than it was you know, years ago when I started practicing, but it still, I think, is a factor, is that most practitioners of Asian medicine aren't doing lots of nutritional counseling in their practices and aren't necessarily practicing that in their own lives. And I think part of the reason for this is a very human one. It's not like I'm trying to make people bad because that's not the case. You know, a hundred years ago, no one had to have an interest in what they ate. They just had to have an interest in eating. Mm-hmm. Everything was organic. You know, there were traditional approaches to, to diet that were localized. Everything was seasonal. I mean, all the things we struggle to make happen today, they were a given 100 years ago. Absolutely. All you had to do was eat. Absolutely. But now, those of us that have an epigenetic predisposition to have an interest in diet or lifestyle have this enormous advantage and that isn't necessarily the majority of the population. So, and that includes people that are practicing medicine, whatever kind, that some of them are fascinated by medicine and may be really good practitioners, but they're not necessarily practicing and delivering nutritional information in the same way. It's just not something they're put together to have an interest in. 
Right. No, I, 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 I understand that. And even for me as a nutritionist and, you know, with a background in Chinese dietetics, um, you know, people, I guess I, I know that I live in the real world. So mm. like you say, you know, you can do your best and it's, and it's hard. You know, I have, I clearly have an interest, but at the same time, I, I think there's a breaking point when your diet becomes you know, I've used this term a lot on the show, a cult or, or, you know, you kind of your religion, your mantra to the point that, you know, you suck all the energy out of every party. <laughs> you, you, uh, you know, never leave your house because you know that if you go drive an hour away and you get stuck, that you may not be able to find your organic bone broth or whatever, you know, you're eating. Uh, it can, it can become a prison. And I see a lot of people creating those prisons around them to the point that they just kind of live somewhere in the woods and you see them every once in a while when they show up at the farmer's market. Uh, but they've kind of like lost their social skills <laughs> and they're, they're, um, they're finding it very difficult to make peace between the two worlds. It's tricky to do that. I remember, oh gosh, way back decades ago now, probably 40 some years ago, I was part of a macrobiotic community in 1975 and there was some rigidity in that community and thankfully because of the example I saw in that community there were a group of us that decided we wanted to form a center that wasn't rigid in that way mm -hmm. so when we formed the east-west center of Austin which is a macrobiotic center um, the you know we had turkey on Thanksgiving and you know, we'd have, you know, Mexican day with chips and we did all, we were really flexible. We said, you know, if you want to eat here for lunch and eat pizza for dinner, it's fine. It's not an issue. And it was a ended up being a gosh, I may have been the most successful, if not the second most successful center in the country because of that, I think. But uh, oh gosh, it's been interesting to see how macrobiotics has stayed in the same place over all these decades and the nutrition world has progressed beyond that and i have to agree with you that flexibility to the degree that we're capable is a really important principle mm -hmm. uh, you know when the stronger we are the more we can draw from our environment and it will make us vital the less strong we are well there's like for me i'm sensitive to casein so mm -hmm. i can't eat bovine dairy products I'll be sick in, you know, 20 minutes. But uh, for my parents, that was a non-issue. They weren't sensitive to dairy at all. It wasn't, wasn't uh, a normal allergen uh, 80 years ago in the United States or exactly. in the world. So that's changed. So for me, I can draw from a little less broadly from my environment than my parents could. Right. And so it's a matter of deciding where's that line and – I think for everyone, it's tricky. For some groups of people, it's it's really challenging. If I'm counseling someone who's in high school or junior high, particularly high school, college, there's a really important principle of being connected socially that really matters for personal development, happiness. It's a big deal. Yes. And isolating themselves in that context so they can eat the diet they may really need to eat isolates them oh, we're kind of between a rock and a hard place. Mm -hmm. And in that case, I give them the choice. Say, you know, you're going to have to decide 
when it's really important to be connected with your community and when, you know, I got a final coming in two days. I've been kind of crazy the last week. I'm feeling a little bit edgy. I'm not going to go crazy tonight. I'm going to toe the party line, eat really well so I can function. And they have to make that that choice. It's not for me to make. Right, right. Yeah. And that's, that's really important too, because, uh, the example I gave was really just kind of the people who put the restrictions on themselves. You know, they decide to be mm-hmm. microbiotic, vegan, paleo, you know, any, any number of diets, uh, that you want to pull from. Uh, but there is the other side of the people who really need it because they will get bouts of diarrhea, acne, other skin conditions. Uh, or stomach, you know, ab- abdominal um, ailments, or like you say, poor thinking, you know, fuzzy headed uh, kind of thing, you know, th- and those are two very different worlds. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I always tell people, well, you know, if you really have something that's going to make you like literally going to make you sick, then, um, you know, you're probably going to want to adhere to that but don't try to pull everything under that umbrella, I guess is <laughs> the point. Some people kind of go hog wire, you know, they know that they have the gluten intolerance and then they start going into, you know, for deeper and deeper into what they can't eat and alienating themselves ultimately from society. It's a tricky one. Yeah, it's, I, I've seen people do really well on paleo and then after a period of time stop doing well and have to add some grains back because for them, they weren't getting enough fiber, mm-hmm. and they ended up up. It's complicated, but upregulating diamine oxidase, so they ended up getting histamine reactions to mm-hmm. all kinds of foods. And oh my goodness, that's a tricky one to turn around. And it's because they went did paleo too long. So we really have to listen to our own bodies and figure out what is it that works for this body, and within that, we're going to be flexible. Right, right. And, you know, then that's, and that's, uh, why I made the comment at the beginning, because I don't know what your experience is, but I generally tell people, even with your, I know that you're, um, certified in the GAPS diet, even that diet, which theoretically will help repair m- many of these types of allergies and, and, and sensitivities to, to foods, uh, by repairing the gut. Um, even that one is generally not recommended past two years. And I, I usually find like a period of about 18 months to 24 months to be, you know, if you're just going to do one diet, you know, paleo, vegan, you know, primal, well, primal is probably the, the least problematic because it, it allows much more flexibility. Uh, however, yeah, you know, I, I'm, what I find is that going past a certain period of time, most people, they kind of hit their limit, you know, like they hit the, they they get this good stride going and then they kind of hit a wall where it's not working anymore. And I usually find that to be around two years. But what's your experience with that? I'd say two years is probably stretching it a little bit. Uh-huh. I agree with you. I think it's between 18 months and two years. Right, right. So, you know, and, and uh, I mean, here in Hawaii, we have less seasonality in that sense. Uh, when I say seasonality, less uh, temp- temperature fluctuations in general. Uh, than right. the rest of the country. But, you know, I still get 40 degree nights here. Like, you know, two weeks ago, we were having nights where it was pretty frosty. And, you know, that I have the same um, issues with my windshield in the morning right now when I get up to take my kids to school. Um, so there's definitely foods that are in season at different times of year on different parts of the island. So even here, although, you know, many people just think, oh, it's the tropics. 
uh, there's enough of a temperature fluctuation that I think we, those same rules of seasonality and, and kind of, um, eating in accordance with what nature is providing at that particular time will help a lot. Yes. Now, now what do you, I mean, this, I guess this plays off of the same thing, but what's your impression when you hear someone like, for example, a, a good friend of mine, she's a raw food vegan and, you know, she's got a website and she's encouraging people to, eat that way and somebody comes into the group and says because I, I joined her group and i really just kind of spy <laughs> but, <laughs> but um you know this woman comes in and she says what kind of foods can i eat as a raw foodist in the winter my my knee-jerk reaction was cook your food <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's winter um yeah. But, you know, also warming herbs, peppers, <laughs> things that might actually, you know, kind of um, stoke your fire. Um, you know, what, what do you when you when you see that, uh, you know, people who are holding so rigidly to these diets and, you know, it's like just the opposite time of year from a Chinese perspective. Well, you know, what's, your, what's kind of your reaction to that? Most of the time when I find someone's doing that, it's because at least initially it really helped them. Yes, for sure. You know, and of course, if they're, you know, to use a vague term, if they're a little on the toxic side or they're running hot mm -hmm. and they do a raw food vegan diet for a while, it's going to be cooling and cleansing and they're going to feel better. Right. Now, they're going to start getting diminishing returns because they'll start getting too cooled and too cooled off, too cleaned out, and end up deficient in cold. But uh, what we see is that when people have had a really positive experience with a rigid dietary pattern, I mean, what the heck could be wrong? It was wonderful. Right. So it takes some real openness, and I think that's just an art. Yeah. With each person that comes in, we have to watch their facial expressions very carefully, test the water gently. Because, I mean, in all humility, I was there in 1975. Yes. You know, the macrobiotics, as much as I got diminishing returns over the years, and I think, in truth, I did some real harm practicing that diet long term because uh, it was too low fat and too low protein, particularly for me. Mm -hmm. But I'm not exaggerating. I think it saved my life initially. Right. Because there was no dairy and there was mm -hmm. no sugar. And my health improved dramatically, right? Dramatically, and I thought, what could be wrong? This thing was so fantastic. What's not working? It was so confusing, and at that time, you know, heck, in the seventies, no one had a clue. So it was pretty much left to my own devices to try and figure out what's happening here. I don't understand what's not working, and that's actually what took me to Oriental Medical School was trying to answer those questions. Some of them. Some of the questions I couldn't even ask. I couldn't form them. I just knew something wasn't working and it didn't make sense. So it took me to Oriental Medical School and we were able to answer most of those questions. And more of them keep being answered as the years go by. I remember when I first read uh, Nourishing Traditions, the first edition when it first came out, Anne-Marie Colden told mm -hmm. me about Sally Fallon. And I read the book and her description of different dietary practices and macrobiotics in, in particular was just brilliant. So crystalline. I was just, oh my goodness, that just nails it. That's exactly the issue. Uh, and with the rigidity and okay. too low fat, not enough protein, etc. So um, that was a time 
getting introduced to the Western Prize Foundation when there was a big increase in understanding. And it just keeps going on because there's actually better and better nutritional research all the time. Right, right. But, you know, one thing that I, I, uh, frustrates me is that, I mean, and I'm not discounting by any stretch of the imagination that you or others will find benefit on, uh, you know, a vegan macrobiotic raw, whatever diet. Um, but I remember something, um, it was actually through the, uh, Price Pottinger Foundation, um, mm-hmm. before Weston A. Price became a thing. Actually, it was probably even before Nourishing Traditions came out. Yes. And I was talking to someone there and, uh, because I was trying to figure out my own health stuff. And I had started seeing a doctor who actually, uh, I don't know if you recall who Dr. Buttram was. Um, but he, he was on the board of, uh, PPNF and, uh, he was also the head doctor at the practice that I had just started go- going to, to, to heal my own body. But I was talking to someone there and he said to me, and I said, I said to him, well, because he was tell- talking me, to me about, you know, eating a certain amount cooked, a certain amount raw, making sure you get fats and meats and all these things. And I said, well, what about, you know, macrobiotics or vegan diets? Like why, why do people say that they, cure cancer on those diets. And he said to me, look, any diet that removes junk food will work initially. Yeah. But then it's the, it's the, uh, you know, then like you said, it's the art of, of getting the right combination of things over time to find out what helps you to thrive. Right. Well, and just basic nutrients. I mean, the macrobiotic diet is a fat starvation diet. Yeah. There's just not much fat in there. And the fats that's there, primarily omega-6s, and not much of that. And, you know, what can I say? It really helped me at the time. I'm grateful for it. And I actually consider myself, from a very broad perspective, macrobiotic now. But if I looked at myself and if I was looking from 1975 to now, I'd say – you're not macrobiotic at all. Right. I'm eating animal food three times a day. I'm getting tons of fat. And, uh, you know, but I'm still having some grains here and there. I do really well on grain. I certainly know people that don't. And and I have a few people that long-term, not very many, mm-hmm. but I have a few people long-term that do amazingly well with a lot more raw food than I can handle. Yes. And so – we, everybody gets to discover on their own what works for them. What's beautiful about understanding these principles of excess deficiency, hot, cold, you know, from Asian medicine right. is that it's such a crystalline, insightful guide. You know, if somebody's doing raw food and all of a sudden they start getting really cold and fatigued and they have the concept that, oh, I've been cleaning out and cooling off. I've taken it too far. Yes. Great. Now, before it goes extreme and I'm getting myself in trouble, I can reverse course a little bit, but stay with quality foods. And, you know, if somebody's running hot and they eat and include more raw food or a ton more vegetables or something of that nature, and, and that takes them, cools them off. It's just a wonderful guide. So we're not just flailing and not having any idea what we're doing, just trying stuff randomly. Right, right. And even though, you know, I have not studied Chinese medicine in that sense, but like I said, I I took a course in New York uh, over 10 months in Chinese dietetics. And yeah, you know, just those, those basic principles, like when somebody tells me, uh, even just, just their, their wording, you know, they'll say, I don't eat meat. I don't like meat. And I go, yeah, but that probably means you like sugar, right? (laughs) 
because it's because you know it's the, they're hypochlorhydric. Right. Well, there's there's that yeah. too, which could actually be from the same thing, right? They're not yeah. they're not stoking the fire to to digest their food, and the only thing that's it's left is this yeast overgrowth that's saying feed me more. So, yeah. um, you know, and, and so, yeah, but I, I find it interesting though, that a lot of people, and this is kind of what I was getting to before, a lot of people, they, they completely jump ship, you know, they're eating nothing but, you know, ramen noodles and chips and they're like, oh, I eat too much meat. I got to go vegan. And that's not always the case, is it? Right. It's not, it's not the, it's, you know, if you're not eating that much meat, you don't really need to give up meat. <laughs> you've, you've already done that. Yeah, that would be, I mean, for that specific example, that's a qualitative conversation, not, you know, it's like, it's not about the meat, it's about ramen isn't necessarily the best quality. Well, there's, that's exactly it. And, and, um, you know, and, but, and I talk to people and I say, well, how can, you know, meat makes up not even a percentage point in your diet. How are you blaming that and jumping ship completely to like an all juice diet or, yeah. you know, something, something on, on those lines? Uh, so yeah, you know, always trying to keep the balance. Now, what, what I'm interested to know from your perspective, and this was something that came up a lot when I was uh, studying Chinese dietetics, how relevant is Chinese medicine when it comes to the chemicals, the pesticides, the GMO, uh, you know, all of these other contaminants? Because there's some practitioners who will say, well, it doesn't matter. The energetics are still there. Do those elements affect the energetics? And how much do we have to worry about them if that's all we can get? Especially, you know, because a lot of people are very worried about products coming out of China. But many of the herbs, for example, only come out of China or, you know, that we know of. What? That's a really good question. You've done your homework, Adrian. Like <laughs> um, so my sense of that is that the toxins or, or toxicants, which is actually the, the, the searchable term and the literature, create what's called turbidity in the food. So the, the energetic of turbidness or just kind of funky, gunky quality, I think that's what's actually going on. When we add all these chemicals and fertilize, chemical fertilizers, et cetera, and toxicants to the food to the environment, we're creating turbidity. And that is an energetic principle in Chinese medicine. Okay. Uh, in my mind, that's actually what's going on. So there is a description of what's going on with that in the medicine. And yes, it matters in a big way. Right. So so then, I mean, I know that it's going to be different for every case, uh, but, you know, what are some of the ways or some, what, what's a good foundational rule of thumb that people can use if they're trying to apply Chinese principles, but, you know, can only get the pesticide laden version of celery or, or whatever it is. Uh, I think the thing is if they, I mean, there's all kinds of lists you can look at to choose the, the vegetables that it's less of an issue. They tend to be less yeah. high and like strawberries and apples are super high in terms of fruits and pesticides. So make the wisest choices we can. I think for people that are just making an effort, mm -hmm. keeping it light and simply making the effort accumulates impact over time. Mm -hmm. We're basically training. We're educating ourselves, developing habits, developing a lifestyle. And if we make the effort and keep making the effort, it's going to have a huge impact cumulatively. 
And it isn't about perfection. If it was about perfection, none of us would be here at all anyway. Yes. <laughs> right. So, um, but then, you know, it's taking this just a step further, has, in light of how different our environment is today and our food sources are today, uh, from the time, you know, that Chinese medicine, the, the principles of Chinese medicine, uh, you know, initially became developed, has Chinese medicine found it necessary to change in in any way to you know kind of skew in a different direction based on on how different food is being raised and how different our topsoil or lack of <laughs> is today right. i don't think so I mean, in my opinion i'd say the medicine is well matured and has been for some thousands of years now it's still growing but goodness the oldest text we used a lot in, in med school, it's 2,600 years old. So, and, it, and nothing in that has been corrected. Right. You know, it's all solid as a rock. Things have been added to it, but it's, it's a mature concept, conceptual model. Yeah, I, I don't think anything has changed in that regard other than understanding the different dynamics of greater variety of foods that we have available than we used to and not being exposed to the elements in the way that we used to, most of us, mm -hmm. and the dynamics that those set up. I know it was really sad to see some years back, had two patients that uh, were high in the Communist Party in China and dropped out of the party and moved to the United States because they were having trouble having a baby. Mm. And they were, oh, we'll come to the U.S. and do IVF. Wow. Well, they didn't know that when you come to the IV, U.S. and do IVF, you're going to have to pay out of pocket. Right. She was a you know PhD in biomedicine, and he was high in the party, and they moved here, and they're washing dishes, and there's no way they're going to have you know they're not going to have the money to do IVF. For, but the yeah. reason when I looked at both of them, because they were high in the party, they had left off eating lard with all their food. Mm. They using canola oil. Oh God! <laughs> Talk about jumping oil. ship, jeez. Yeah. They grew up on canola oil, and both had really crooked dentition. Right. So I thought, "There's your infertility." I mean, what a tragedy for them. And I mean, it was heavy duty. They were emotionally distraught over the thing, stuck here, can't go back to China at this point. Oops, those bridges have been burned. Right. And they don't have the lives they had in China. They're, it was just a huge tragedy. And, you know, here they were because they were higher class, if you can say such a thing about Chinese culture, uh, you know, high in the party. Yeah, yeah. They had access to these new foods that were cooler, but didn't serve them. Right, right. So so was there a happy, happy ending, uh, no pun intended, uh, <laughs> the story? <laughs> I'm sorry to say no. I mean, there's, there's not... They were. They don't. They didn't have the money. They're not going to have the money to mm. do IVF here. Okay. So they can't go back to China. Right. They're eating well. They, uh, so they have changed their diet around. They changed their diet. They know what to do. They're much healthier than they were, but right. they weren't able to have a child. Right. Right. That's that's really a tragedy, and that's um, something that I, I talk a, uh, quite a bit about actually, because my family's from Jamaica originally, and I went. Oh gosh seven years ago now uh, to visit family and they were just eating all of this. Like, you know, they're, they're, they don't have a lot of money uh, and they're eating 
nothing but sugar water and, you know, like you said, the vegetable oils. And they've got coconuts right above their head. And where my mother was from uh, was known, that area was known for producing coconut oil. But, you know, pesticide programs uh, killed the, the coconut palms, if you can believe that, because coconuts will grow in just about anything. Uh, and, uh, yeah, they, they really, you know, you can see the difference in the faces of my, for example, my cousins who were born and raised in the 50s and 60s uh, there. And then you look at the, the newer generations, you know, with their skin problems, the, you know, the mental issues, you can tell that they're, you know, not as sharp uh, in mm-hmm. some cases. Um, I mean, there was, you know, behavioral stuff going on and it was really quite tragic. But again, they're, they're relying on these so-called, you know, modern pro- foods of progress and you see anything but progress in yeah. the children that are produced. Plan experiment. Right. Exactly. What we're doing in this country. Oh, for sure. When we first started looking at, at uh, healthcare in the United States, and this is actually long before the ACA, I remember thinking, uh-oh, this, this is very much needed. I'm totally behind it. And it's not the problem. <laughs> Granted. I think the medical system in the United States is Neanderthal. It's not practiced well. It's, you know, it's doesn't benefit the physicians, doesn't benefit the patients. Uh, but the issue isn't the medical system as much as people aren't eating food and living lifestyles that are healthy. So we're a bunch of sick puppies. That's the issue. Right. And because the Western medical system as it exists now in this country isn't capable of addressing that. We just keep getting sicker and sicker and we can't afford it. So yeah. it threatens the the stability of the nation because too much time and energy and resource is being wasted on illness. Right. And, you know, Russia broke up because of corruption and not enough wealth to support the level of corruption. And I look at this country and I think, dang it, we're going the same direction. Oh, for sure. For different reasons. You know, if everybody's either in the hospital or caring for somebody in the hospital, it's going to be kind of hard to compete with China and India from a hospital bed. It's, that experiment's not going to work very well. <clears throat> and I don't want that to be the case for any person. I don't want it to be the case in China. I don't want it to be the case in India um, or the U.S. either. And we really get to turn this thing around. And that's going to be a big deal in terms of turning around, as you know, yesterday – you spoke with the uh, farm to the uh, legal uh, farm to defense. consumer legal defense fund. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Hugely important because if we don't support small farms, it we're not going to do very well. We need local small farms, and we're so blessed to have that in the Durham area. Just incredible farmers markets, local farms, aquaponic and and production, and you know high quality organic food production. Uh, everything from animal food, vegetable food. There's even some local grain production here. Mm-hmm. You know, as that continues to expand in the country and people continue to vote with their food dollars, we can turn this around, but I don't think it'll, it'll come from the top down. I think it's going to be choices that individual people make. Absolutely. And that's uh, <laughs> that's exactly what I, I um, have been saying is that, you know, it's I think it's becoming more and more clear that we just have to re- rely on ourselves. And it's 
you know, kind of to some extent, shame on us because we have put so much on the medical community to solve all of our problems. And, you know, yeah. we're this instant gratification type of, uh, of, of society. Uh, and, you know, we really don't have anyone to blame but ourselves for, for giving them that much authority over what benefits the individual on that level. Uh, meanwhile, yeah. we don't trust them with, you know, gun laws and taxes, but somehow what's going on within this system uh, we call our bodies. Uh, we think that they know everything. Yeah. So, so when it comes to, to the, the Chinese texts that are available, because I, I personally, I think there are a lot of misconceptions and maybe we'll go to that first. What, are, what are in your mind, what are some of the misconceptions that people have, whether they're actually practicing or just interested in pursuing this as another avenue to incorporate into into their their dietary choices i've had a number of patients that have developed an interest in this area and some of the food you know and energetics of food books were very specific and narrow just like we were talking about earlier and so it's like this food is this energetic and that food's that energetic and to me, the big picture really covers it. Is this food generally warming? Is it generally cooling? Is it generally building? Is it generally cleansing? If you want to get more specific to that and talk about which organ system it's going to strengthen or clean out, you know, you know, tonify or disperse, those are the big brushstrokes. And that's really, I think, all you need. In a therapeutic context, I find those little subtle nuances with food aren't as powerful as other lifestyle choices from, you know, exercising appropriately, whatever that is for each person, mm-hmm. getting sun first thing in the morning direct, like getting eyeglasses off so that we get sun first thing on our eyes in the mornings each day as much as possible. Um, you know, things of that nature are really huge. I mean, if we're treating uh, in the clinical setting, I'm going to give them homework of points that we've discovered through palpation in clinic that work. And you know, we've established that they're effective uh, by through palpation by, you know, touching. Let's say somebody comes in with a whiplash and it's been five years and their neck still bothering them. I'm going to find the most painful place on their neck and then look for points elsewhere on their body that make their neck better. <clears throat> the idea is that it's not about their neck. Their neck is a part of their body. And if, their body was supporting their neck to be well, it would be well. So I want to find where elsewhere, maybe it's a points on the feet or abdomen or arms or hands or someplace else besides their neck that makes their neck significantly better, at least 30% minimum on the table right there. So we know that those points work and knowing what the points do really gives us a targeted idea about, ah, this is the reason your neck didn't heal. You know, it's either a spleen component or that kind of specificity can come up in clinic. But short of that, just broad brushstrokes of is this food warming, cooling, cleansing, or building? Those are great principles to use. And they're so general, they're easy and they're not confusing. Right, right. Yes, exactly. And, and, and that's uh, what I was getting at when I say that I use it very generally because I could go and th- that was one of the problems with the course that I took was that we were learning three different systems of Chinese medicine, which all, you know, had their slight differences. And, and even when you compare, uh, to, for example, macrobiotics, which 
you know, does use uh, similar concepts, but applying them to different foods. Oh, yeah, so, except the trouble is yin and yang aren't actually used the way they were always used traditionally. They're confused, but only some of the parameters are confused. And that's, I really think, one of the things that has hurt the macrobiotic movement is that the way yin and yang are conceptualized just is not the way they were conceptualized historically. It doesn't work. It's very confusing. Exactly. I intentionally didn't bring up using yin and yang as a method to understand the energetics of food, partly for that reason. Right. So actually, could you um, articulate for people what yin and yang is? Because I think that people think they understand it, but you know, how that applies to their food and, you know, even the, some of the things we talked about before, um, seasons, time of day, etc. If we think about a fire, the logs represent the yin aspect mm-hmm. and the flames mm-hmm. represent the yang aspect. Now, you can put your hand quickly into the flame and out <clears throat> and it may get warm, but you're not going to stub your fingers on anything. Uh, The flames are sort of ethereal. They're just coming up and going and disappearing. There's not much that's substantive to them. They're warm. They're rising. They're expanding. They're not particularly solid, whereas the logs are, until you heat them up with the flames, they're cool. They're substantive. You know, you put your finger into the log and you just stub the heck out of your fingers without and it took a long time to grow that log. So that's that process over time that's so yin. So the logs represent the yin aspect and the flames, the yang aspect. And they're grounded too, right? The, the yeah. fact that they're, you know, they've got that weight and they <laughs> are on the ground. Heavy, um, dense, right. solid, all those things are yin aspect. And we can't think of yin and yang as separate entities. They're always relative to each other, of course. And there's and, always a little bit of yin in the yang and a little bit of yang in the yin. Yes. And oh, my goodness. It would be interesting to apply that to politics. But we <laughs> um, oh, my God. I ho- at least I hope there is. Okay. Um, so now let's move on to body types. Yin versus yang. So I'm going to say there's – I'm going to hmm, – let me think about how I want to coach this. <clears throat> so I'm going to say there let's, – let's look at four body types. So a full yang would be someone that holds a fair amount of weight easily, can get overweight without too much problem, tends to run hot, has tons of energy, and think your classic high blood pressure, working at 70 hours a week, business person, cranking away, just hammering it for decades. Never sick. That's a full yang. Okay. Is that, is that what we call type A personality? Yes. Okay. Well, yes, but we'd also talk an empty young would also be a type A personality. Think someone who's more, say, Japanese style. They're not, they're really slim, mm-hmm. but they have tons of energy. Mm-hmm. They can be work just as hard as the, the full young, but they don't hold much weight. So they're empty young. Okay. Okay. Now they'll burn out sooner if they overdo it because they don't have the reserve held in, you know, they don't hold the reserve. They can't add the excess weight to burn. Right. Yeah. Then we have the yin components. We have the full yin, which is someone that's on the couch, 
doesn't feel like they have much energy. They actually do. It's just stuck, not moving. Overweight, tofu-y kind of weight, you know, kind of soft, you know. And just, I, uh, I call it water weight. And yeah. Yeah. That'll do because that's yin. And then, uh, then the empty yin is someone who's really deficient and really doesn't have much vitality. So we have this four aspects of yin, yang, empty, full. And the full yang would do well on a raw vegan diet for a while. They're hot. They're excess. They'll yeah, give them juices for a week. They'll feel great. They'll fix everything. You know, you just dump the excess and everything's balanced and they're okay. The empty young, they'll need a vacation. They're going to tend to work and work and work and just get cranking and have a hard time stopping. Now, their prescription generically would be take a vacation. The empty yin needs a good cook that knows Asian principles that can build their vitality. You know, bone broth soup for breakfast, mm. cooked food. And the full yin needs to, you know, cut the carbs, but more importantly, move. Mm. You know, be exercising, get movement going. So in a very general sense, you can kind of picture those extreme sort of body types and the kinds of needs each one has and why they are what they are. Wow. That's a that's a great explanation. I think that'll help a lot of people to kind of understand themselves better and why there's just not one prescription because it worked for your neighbor or your parents, even like, you know, in your situation with the milk, um, you know, that it doesn't always apply and it's, and it's not always hereditary and there's so many little factors at play. Right. And if you, if people are interested, Galen looked at the four types, the sanguine, uh, phlegmatic, choleric, and uh, melancholic, and those relate to these. The sanguine is the full yang, uh, choleric is the empty yang, phlegmatic is the full yin, and melancholic is the empty yin. And the thing is, there's no good or bad here. It's yin and yang. Right. So you can have someone who's an empty yin, you say, oh gosh, you wouldn't want to be that. Well, these people tend to figure out what they need early on because they have to. Yes. And as a result, they can end up with a really good condition and thriving for a long life. Whereas the full young doesn't necessarily need to learn anything about this because they'll just barrel through anyway. And by the time they hit 65 or 70 or whatever, um, and now they actually need to, you know, figure out, make some balance and have an appropriate lifestyle and make some improvements. And it can be extremely difficult for them to do it because they just never exercise that muscle at all. Right. So, no good or bad here. There's pluses and minuses to each type. And it's a fascinating way to rubric through which to look at the types and understand what the pitfalls can be and know them ahead of time and avoid them. Yeah, I, I love the fact that you say that there's no good and bad because this is a this is a, a huge problem, and I get this question almost daily from people. Even it doesn't matter how many times I tell them, <laughs> they say, "Well, you know, are strawberries good or bad for me? Are you know, is this good or bad?" And it's like, well, it's not necessarily what you need right now. It doesn't make the food bad. Let's not, <laughs> you know, I think we've we've gotten to a point where we where we blame the food and a lot. And to be honest, I, I the. Per, well, I think the paleo diet does it too. Uh, but, um, you know, the, the macrobiotic vegan diet, the, the focus becomes 
so much on meat bad and fat bad and, you know, everything else that we don't want you to eat is bad, um, that it really, you start to question everything. And well, I have to say, I appreciate your comment on that because you actually nailed it. One of the things that I like to say is that there's no good and bad with food. There is no good. Now there's non-food. There's chips, soy, and Twinkies. Right. And that's exactly. Not I, food. I call those that's, the I call those the anti-foods. <laughs> yeah, that's not food. But when it comes to food, anything is potentially in harmony with me, or not in harmony with me, or yes. anyone else. And so, as long as I don't make a fixed value judgment of this food's good or this food bad, if I do that, I stop thinking about paying attention. How does this food make me feel? Uh, you know, what's going on? I, I stop paying attention. I have this fixed value judgment and I'll, it's so easy to get stuck there way past the point of balance. Whereas if I don't think in terms of good and bad with food, just think, oh, this food's kind of warming. I, you know, I feel kind of cool today and been kind of cool lately. I need some warming. Let's do some bone broth soup. Right. That kind of thinking will guide us to a balanced point so much more quickly than getting attached to good and bad with food. Right. And that's what Sally Fallon said. I loved it at the last Western Price Conference. She, uh, at the Saturday evening uh, big dinner, she said, this is an inclusive diet. I just thought, oh, my gosh, mm -hmm. that's it. That just nails it. Yeah. Because the Western Price approach is, well, here's food for human beings. Now you get to figure out which ones work for you and how you're going to prepare them and all that stuff. But there's no bad food here. There's no good food. Here's the food. We get to figure out what's going to work for each of us. Right. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. And, uh, yeah, we, there's, uh, again, our instant gratification mindset has led us to wanting to put that value judgment so we don't have to think about it anymore. You know, yeah. it's, that's, that's just a done deal. Decided I don't have to, to expend any energy to think about it, which in some ways could be, uh, indicative of how, how ill we are, right? As, as a society, because we can't, we, we, we've gotten to a point where thinking about the, just the, the very basic food choices, which even in a time, even though, um, I agree with what you said before, but even in a time when food was food, people put a lot more thought into their food. And now we try to, where it's become such the enemy, we do anything not to have to focus on it. We think that that's the progress is to devalue food as, as an entity. And, you know, one of the things that I've found in a lot of the Chinese texts, and you tell me if you've seen the same thing, is that, uh, not, sorry, not the traditional Chinese texts, but, um, you know, many North American texts that are aiming to, uh, bring uh, information about Eastern diets, whether it's Ayurveda or, or Chinese medicine, is they, again, they immediately jump on a, uh, some kind of either macrobiotic type or vegan style diet or basically excluding all animal foods. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, are you, are you seeing the same thing or are you looking at different texts when you, when, you know, if, if you're evaluating other things? And I see this, the tendency in all of us, including myself. It's so easy in clinic to say, oh, this will be good. As soon as I hear myself say that, no, hold it, hold it, no. I think this will be appropriate, mm. and here's why. When that changes, well, maybe it won't be appropriate as much or it won't be as significantly beneficial. But I, it's so easy to say good and bad when we're talking about food. It's so – and we all do it, and it's – I'm cautionary about that because it really 
does get us in a fixed value judgment. Right, right. Um, what what are some of the the uh, texts that you found to be helpful? Because I I actually really like uh, I have the Silk Bound book by Henry Liu, and it and it talks yeah. about the different energies of of you know herbs and meats, and if you roast a uh, you know pot roast versus you. Uh, uh, simmer it, how different the energy becomes and how one version might be more tendon, might have more of a tendency to make you gain weight and the other one may help you lose weight, for example. W- what are some of your favorite authors or, or texts? Oh my goodness, Adrienne, I don't have one. <laughs> uh, you have I to have write to- one. Where, where's no, yours? I'm, I'm thinking about another project first. I think that the text, in order to write a book about the subtleties of energetics of food, by nature, it has to get picky and into the minutia. And I just don't think it's about the minutia. Mm. I mean, if somebody is going to eat a roast, however they prepare that roast, it's going to be a roast. It's going to be warming and building. Right. Now, the only possible exception is if they use huge amounts of hot spices from peppers, in which case it will be less warming because hot spices from fruits are cooling long-term, not short-term, but long-term. Okay. But uh, if, you know, it's still going to be warming. I mean, it, it is a roast. So I feel like, hmm, I guess bluntly put, I think a person's time is better spent looking at the big picture and if we take all this time and focus just on the food piece, mm-hmm. we can't focus on, well, okay, relationships, meditation, uh, my movement, whatever it's going to be for me, whether it's weights or intervals or yoga or all of the above. Or I love the fact that you said movement, not exercise. Because that's exactly what I, I tell people as well. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not about just like this rote exercise. It's just moving and also breathing which is often overlooked. Well, and, and something that's creative that involves our whole body, whether it be dance or music or, you know, something of that nature. Mm-hmm. On, on, you know, almost on a vibrational level. Vibrational and on a really, I don't know, maybe this isn't a mundane level, but I have a, uh, I've stud- done some study of functional neurology and I was talking with a functional neurologist a couple of years ago and he was saying, physically playing an instrument should feel good. Mm-hmm. And he said, the better you get, and if you spend time, there will be a pleasurable feeling by the act of playing itself. Whether you get the notes or not, whether you play well or not, there will get a point, become a point where it feels good. And that feel good feedback into the central nervous system is a hugely important principle for brain health. Right. <clears throat> Right. So and it really gets us in our bodies. Yeah. Really focusing our ability to play arpeggios on the piano or, you know, breathe well when we're working on our sax, you know, riffs or <clears throat> what have you. So, you know, that's a big deal. I, I find if people can do something like that, it's just incredibly enriching and their brains fire better. That's, that's fantastic. Now, uh, one thing that uh, this is, this is going to, uh, go more towards your acupuncture uh you mentioned that uh you uh, um use acupuncture for breast disorders 
Can yes. You talk to us a little bit about that. Uh, I started doing this, oh gosh, it's been 20 years now. Uh, finished the orthopedic training in New Mexico, and a physician came in and had a shoulder complaint. I had, again, I had just finished the national board exam on it. I had that stuff, you know, much better down then than I do now. The whole shoulder intake was just routine. Had you know, she was really impressed and improved her shoulder, got it handled. Six months later, she came back said, "I just discovered I have breast cancer." Oh. And she brought in a pen. She said, "I'm going to draw a circle around that cancer. I remember what you did, and this is not a fast-growing cancer. I am not interested in Western treatment. As a physician, I'll sign a waiver." Let's treat this thing and see what we can do. She made some dietary changes. She did some other stuff. But what we did, and this is the first time I had done something like that, started palpating that mass and looking for points that made the mass smaller. Of course, Mm. just like the example of the neck, I never went near her breast with a needle. Right. I just palpated that lesion to determine what made it smaller. And she would draw a circle around it. And every time she came in for treatment, we made it smaller. She's still practicing. She never did any Western treatment. Now, this is not going to say that every woman is going to have that experience. I mean, cancer is a big deal, has a lot of momentum. I don't want to say that because it wouldn't be the truth. Right. And, uh, you know, she started referring a ton of patients after that for breast disorders. You know, breast pain associated with lactation or, you know, whatever, trauma or whatever. And so I got better and better and better. And then when I moved here, she called the, uh, let's see, it was the lactation consultant department at UNC and told them what we had been doing together. And they started referring patients. We actually did a small study at UNC treating breast pain associated with lactation. And the results were just stellar. You know, somebody comes in and the breast tissue feels like concrete, hard, painful, inflamed. Uh, They're just you know, mastitis is waiting in the wings and they're having trouble nursing. And in an average of two treatments or a little less, we're able to completely clear all of that out Wow! for the duration of nursing that child. So since then, I've continued with this and continue to refine the protocol, continue to get better at it because, you know, what the heck, you got to keep refining. Yeah. Otherwise, it's not fun. You got to keep getting better. So, um, well, you so, always, you always have to know a lot before you realize how much you don't know. <laughs> so, so you know, you just keep learning because you're like, oh, now I don't know this. <laughs> These other so barriers show up. I'm in the process of seeing if I can figure out a way to do a study, another study, treating some stage, either DCIS, ductal carcinoma in C2, reversing that with acupuncture, or if someone has a breast cancer diagnosis before they go in for further treatment, having this window of time during which we can treat and demonstrate results, whether I can do that in America, it's pretty progressive stuff. I may not be able to. And if a few years back, I was planning to go to Cuba to do it. Mm. It'd be a lot easier now. I mean, I, I never thought in a million years that things would open up as much as they have. Yeah. So I may end up going to Cuba to do that, but I'd, I'd rather do it here if I can. Because if it's done here, we're a culture-centric nation. It's not a strong suit for us as a nation. I think it doesn't serve us well to think that what we do is better. Mm -hmm. The Japanese don't have – every culture has its stuff. 
And this is one of our issues. You know, Japanese aren't biased against wisdom from another culture. Yes. You know, after the Second World War, a whole bunch of brilliant, amazing, traditionally trained acupuncturists became MDs. Right. And they embraced it. Oh, my gosh, there's an endocrine system. Right. Well, let's go. There's a totally transformed without compromising their training as acupuncturists. They added this other whole theoretical piece and understanding of physiology and figured out how to treat that even more effectively using Western insights. So the style we practice is, you know, based on Kiko Matsumoto's work, which is, you know, putting East and West together. And anyway, long story short, um, would like to do it here because I recognize that in this country we are culture centric and for it to get attention here, it would be more effective if I do the research here, either Duke or UNC or something like that, or maybe right. in New Mexico. Um, but if I can't do it there, what the heck? I may end up going to Cuba or Spain or someplace in Europe and doing it there. We'll see what happens. Well, if you need a Spanish translator, just let me know. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be fun. I'll, I'll be no, I, I, I have to confess, the other fantasy is get to Cuba. I better bone up on my salsa dancing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm not a salsa dancer, but I could learn. <laughs> well, I'm um, not a dancer. I've done Lindy, Charleston, Balboa, and blues. But, uh, you, know, if, you know, if I'm in Cuba, they're doing salsa. Yeah, when in, when in Cuba. Yeah, you, got um, it. you know, I, I, uh, I, the, the, um, example you gave of not having to touch the breast to heal the breast and the same with the neck. Uh, are you familiar with Touch for Health? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I found uh, see, m- one of my passions is collecting old. <laughs> I collect old books and old, you know, things, things from before health became so commoditized. Yes. And um, so I found a book on Touch for Health from 1973. And I was actually reading through it in the past week. And I love the the explanation that he gives because I've taken some classes with Donna Eden and some of her uh, protégés. And, uh, and, but she never explained it quite this way because it's the same exact stuff that, that he's doing in this, this book. But he said, uh, you know, take a, uh, like a, um, a swinging door, like one of those restaurant doors, right? In and out of the kitchen. And let's say the spring on one side gets stretched out and it's too weak to hold the door in place. So it will look like the, the spring on the other side is strong because it will pull to the side that has the, the good spring. Yes. And. You know, it, that doesn't mean that it's stronger. It just means that the other one's weak. So work on strengthening the weak part and the pain, or, you know, in this case, the, the, um, the, that so-called strong spring will, you, uh, will allow the door to go back to center. Yes. And I really, I really loved that parallel because I think a lot of people, uh, or the explanation, because I think that a lot of people can't really understand like, okay, my shoulder's hurting. It doesn't mean that my shoulder needs a lot of massage and a lot of attention. You know, let's, let's look for what is the, the opposing force that may have given way. I like to use in that regard is let's say, uh, I have a daughter who's 15 who acts out and robs Walmart. But actually find out it's because there's abuse in the family. She's been abused. Mm-hmm. She's not the problem. We can give her all kinds of counseling and support. Eh, it's not going to do the job. Problem isn't lack of support for her. The problem is the abuse is an issue. It's right. a family setting issue. And 
if we handle that piece, then a little attention to her will be beneficial. But until we handle that piece, she won't get better. So in mm. the case of coming in with the whiplash, it's not about their neck. Their neck is acting out because the family setting, their body, in, in effect, isn't supporting their neck to heal. If it did, it would be healing. So, right. And I like that you've been exposed and have checked out uh, Donna Eden's work. She's amazing. I have deep respect for her and David and the work they've done together. Yeah, they they do they do great stuff. I just I'm waiting for them to show up in Hawaii one of these days. I don't leave the island much <laughs> since I've moved here. Oh, they'll they'll go. Actually, they they had something. Didn't they have something this last year in Hawaii? Um, not on this island. Oh, not, not on that island. Not, not, not that I know of, at least. Um, yeah. but they may have. You're right. I think they may have done something on maybe Maui. Yeah. That's yeah. that's the big uh that Maui seems to be the big draw for a lot of practitioners when they uh, when they come yeah. to the islands. Uh in any case, uh Dr. Moorhead, what um anything that you would like to leave listeners to think about? Um your website is orientalhealthsolutions.com. Uh what what kind of services can they get from you? Oh, well we do functional medicine and Asian medicine, so acupuncture, herbs, Lots of nutritional counseling, do labs, things of those nature, things of that nature. Uh, we do have one MD there that does hypnosis and EFT. Wow! And uh, there's four practitioners, and maybe soon a fifth. And uh, in terms of, gosh, we've covered amazingly some really important principles. I'm remarkable. It's remarkable. Uh, I think the main thing is to keep it light, and yeah, don't don't let it get too heavy. And when people aren't well, it's a big deal. We only get this one body, and it's easy for it to get too heavy. And from an Eden Energy perspective, uh, that's counterproductive because it gets Sanjiao or triple warmer, ex, you know, all excited, and that becomes a compounding problem. Mm. So to keep it light and keep breathing and recognize that as long as we're taking steps the right direction we're probably going to get there and we may take steps that don't work and we'll get feedback. Okay. That didn't work. And then we you know, turn a little bit and step further another direction. And that's the actual path. As long as we're moving, the universe can support us. Wow. If we're stuck and we're not moving. The universe is helpless to help us. But as long as we're taking those baby steps, they can have a huge cumulative impact and the universe can course correct, but only if we're moving. I wish the universe would course correct my gray hair. It's it's, it's, it's no joke. <laughs> but uh, oh, you have a lot of company. Um, <laughs> it has its own gifts. Uh, they they come not, not when people think that I'm my six year old's grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. I understand. All right. It's okay. Well, you know, I have to say, if if I were going to a dance, I've learned to look around for the gray. Oh. Look around for the gray. It's like ah, that's somebody I want to dance with. We got some gray hair here. Ah, so. uh, yeah, and they say for for men for men it's the black shirt because if he's wearing black, you know it's because he's going to be sweating, uh, and he's, that means he's a good dancer. He'll be dancing uh, all night. Got it. Got it. That's <laughs> oh, good to know that piece. So um, so yeah, maybe I'll see you in Cuba. You wear the black shirt. I'll bring the gray hair. Dale, you're on. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Ken. Um, best to you. And oh, actually, I wanted to find out, do you do any of your, at Oriental Health Solutions, do you do any of your work by Skype or phone, uh, any kind of consultations that you're able to do for people who may not be able to get to your area? 
Yes, actually, I did three today. Oh. Usually, it's Fridays. And um, so we do phone consultations and Skype sessions with people from you know, pretty much all over the country. I haven't done any from outside the country, but uh, well, Canada. But, uh, you know, those are fairly routine for, for all the staff, myself and everybody on staff. Excellent. Excellent. Good to know. So uh, people, uh, listen up. Uh, Dr. Moorhead, he's uh, based in Durham, North Carolina, orientalhealthsolutions.com. Thank you once again for being on the show and uh, let us know when uh, you have something new to share with us. Thanks, Adrian. It's been a pleasure, a delight. You do a good job. I'm so glad I was on the show today. It was a pleasure. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Bye-bye. The Nutrition Heretic Podcast is a production of Savor the Journey, LLC. Our audio editor is Nikola Popovich. Our podcast manager is Crystal McLean. And our operations manager is Michelle Med. I'm your host, Adrian Hugh, the Nutrition Heretic. You can find us at the new and improved nutritionheretic.com, where you can download the Nutrition Heretic's free shit list of seven health foods to avoid like the plague. You can also listen to previous episodes at nutritionheretic.com forward slash podcast. Be sure to like us on social media for updates. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash nutritionheretic and on Twitter at NutriHeretic. Contact us with show ideas, questions, or if you want to be a guest. And don't forget to rate our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher.